Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're continuing our series in the book of James today called Faith That Works. So let's turn in our Bibles to James chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled Genuine Faith and the Poor. When you think of the poor, what image comes to your mind? You know, if we did a survey to answer that question, we might call to mind a number of different pictures. Perhaps the word homelessness comes to mind, or the word penniless. Perhaps it's the person in ragged clothing, or pictures of starving people in third world countries. Perhaps you think of the person who has no food and no drinking water, no clothing, shelter, health care, education. Those are the poor. But maybe you have other images. Perhaps it's the working poor, can't afford good shoes for their kids or decent clothing. It's one paycheck away from disaster. You know, perhaps you have an image of the elderly person who subsists on Canada Pension Plan alone. I remember once hearing a U.S. judge making a ruling on pornography, and he said, I find it hard to define it, but I know it when I see it. Well, you might think that is also true of the poor. Now, let me ask you a second question. What do you think of the poor? I mean, maybe you think they should get a job. Well, indeed, I suppose some should. There is no excuse for sloth or for giving up. Maybe some should get off of drugs and alcohol. And again, I guess I agree. But do you think that's the reason for the majority of poverty? Some of you perhaps have a different attitude. You say, well, we should give more to the poor, make them an an object of charity. Now, here's another question. How many of you would say, I have a number of friends, some of my closest friends, who are among the poor? Here's a problem. It's hard to have the poor as friends, especially the uneducated poor. I mean, after all, what do you talk about? And then how do you do things with them, like play golf or go on vacation or eat out? You know, you can't really be friends because when you think about it, friendship and some financial means go hand in hand, at least in your experience. So let's open our Bible to James. In chapter 1, James tells us that genuine faith perseveres no matter how hard our trials become. Then James told us that in order to withstand our temptations, we need the Word of God. But, says James, we need to be not only hearers of the Word, but doers. Then James took us one step further. Doing the Word includes learning how to bridle our tongues, caring for the poor, and also in holy living. And with that, James becomes very practical. Let's talk, he says, about how we treat the poor. I'm reading James chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? 
So we're going to talk about doing the word in relationship to the poor. Our text begins with a command. Show no partiality as you hold the faith. You know, the Greek word partiality literally means to receive the face. It means to make judgments about someone based upon external appearance, only what you see in the face. It means to show favoritism based on externals. And you know, we all do that. We all show partiality based on external things that we observe in the people we meet. But what does being impartial, which I think we would all agree is a very good thing, what does being impartial have to do with genuine faith? Now, you'll notice that in verse 1, James uses the phrase, faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So, let me stop here for just a moment, and let me press that point. You know, some people have taught that James and Paul are in contradiction to each other. Paul, they say, speaks about faith, and James, they say, speaks about works. But notice again that phrase, faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Sounds almost Pauline, doesn't it? But it is James speaking, and please notice that for James, as it is for Paul, Jesus is the object of his faith. Furthermore, would you notice that in verse 1, James not only tells us to place our faith in Jesus, he calls Jesus the Lord of glory, or literally, Jesus Christ of the glory. Now, clearly, like Paul, James also has an exalted Christology. His faith is in Jesus, whom James calls both the Lord and then the Lord of glory, meaning that Jesus, in James' mind, as with all the early church, is exalted above all. See, James knows that the half-brother he grew up with was, in fact, God come in human flesh. James does know that, but why does he bring it up here? See, I think the answer has everything to do with with what James is teaching. If you only receive the face, that is, if you only make judgments about Jesus based on external appearance, well, you'd never come to genuine faith. You know, James himself was once like that. You might look at Jesus and say, well, he looks like a regular guy. Or you might even note that this regular guy was not like Caesar in his seat of power or even the high priest or Pontius Pilate. He was humble. You know, Paul said something very much like that. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Now that's a mouthful. Or you might think of what Jesus said in Matthew 8, verse 20. He said, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus was poor. And if all you looked at was the face of it, well, then you would conclude that that's all there is. You would not see the Lord of glory who comes to us in the richness of God. Yeah, this Jesus is the object of our faith. Our faith went beyond receiving the face. It considered him from a vantage point beyond easy external prejudices. Now, if that's true, if that's basic to our faith, well, asks James, what about the application? Do we actually go beyond being simply hearers of the word and and believing our doctrines? And do we actually enter into the wonderful world of biblical application? doers of the word, where we live out the word. So here's a principle. Genuine faith goes beyond mere appearances. 
Well, let's go to application. If our faith demands we go beyond the face, then how about going beyond the face when we meet people? Notice again verses 2 to 4. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and you say, sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? You see the application? Well, on one hand, it it relates to church greeters and ushers. But I need to point out another crucial piece. Look at the word shabby in verse 2. That's exactly the same word in the Greek that we would find in chapter 1, verse 21, which is there translated as filthy. Therefore, put away all filthiness, says James 1.21, and it refers to our own sin. Now then, using that same word, filthiness, James now moves from inner filthiness, which we are to abandon, to outer filthiness, which he says is not a reflection of a man's moral character. Now, just before we get way too personal on this, let me paint a picture. The word assembly in verse 2 is literally the word synagogue. James is writing to a largely Jewish Christian church very early in the Christian story. And and at that time, Jewish Christian churches were called synagogues. And just like Jewish synagogues of that day, there were just very few benches to sit on. There would have been one or two in the front, some others around the walls. In Matthew 23, verses 5 to 6, Jesus denounced the Pharisees, he said, who loved the best seats in the synagogues. So it turns out that most synagogues had a definite pecking order to them. That that was just custom. The seats were reserved for the most important people, and most normal people either sat cross-legged on the floor or they stood in the back. And furthermore, and this is germane to what we're reading, we know that it was not uncommon for the wealthy and important to actually have a footstool in which they spread out, kind of like having a, a lazy boy recliner at church. I know some of you are saying, how do we get that in my church? So the scenario is apparent. A poor guy doesn't even get the footstool. James says that kind of thinking comes from evil thoughts. Back to the Bible Canada has just wrapped up another fiscal year, and we're beyond grateful for all your gifts toward our year-end target. Your generous donations have helped position this ministry for another successful year of sharing the gospel in every way imaginable. We're so excited for everything we have in store for this next year, so stay tuned. Our match campaign in June was a huge success, but we're humbled to say the amount of the pledges we received for the match campaign exceeded our expectations. Therefore, we're able to extend the campaign into July with an additional $75,000. So dollar for dollar, your gift will be matched up to an additional $75,000 in the month of July. We're so grateful for your gracious support right across Canada. So to double your impact, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Now, 
Now, lest we get too critical of these early Jewish Christians when they put the poor in the worst of seats, understand that they would have done that without even thinking. It was a part of their culture. You know, but says James, the reason you don't think about that is because you're allowing your culture and not your Bible doctrines to tell you what to do. (laughs) And that's a lesson for all of us. Now, go to the beginning of verse 4. James said, you have made distinctions among yourselves. And that word distinctions is the same word that's found in chapter 1, verse 6. There it's translated as doubting. It means to have a divided heart. In James, it refers to the person who says they believe one thing and then acts in another way. They might not even recognize that. But an outsider sees it instantly. James says that when we believe that the Lord of glory was made poor for us, Well, that leads to a practical application of our treatment or welcoming of anyone who is poor. Let's see if we can apply that to your local church. You know, most North American churches today don't have the best seats in the front. I've noticed that most churches, well, they load to the rear. And and once those seats are taken, whoever comes late is seated up to the front. And furthermore, latecomers are often seated right at the front. And so the idea of seating the poor man at the back, well, that just doesn't make an impact on us. So I suppose we can pat ourselves on the back and congratulate ourselves that, well, we don't have that problem. But what about the poor and the destitute in your home Bible study group or in your circle of friends? What if you have no poor among your friends? What then? If a consistent faith welcomes the poor, why is it that we so seldom do that ourselves? But James is going to be just a little tougher on us yet. Look again at the last part of verse 4. James says we can become judges with evil thoughts. You know, in the Old Testament, the evil judges were those who took bribes. The money had blinded their eyes to the cries for justice. And so it is with us if we reject the poor. Your eyes have been blinded from what's right. And that brings me to a common problem that Christians in modern cities often ponder. What then should I do with beggars on the street? Am am I wicked if I reject their call for money? Now, I think our answer to that has to be somewhat nuanced, but I think we're getting ahead of ourselves. James will deal with that later in this chapter, so stay tuned for that. But there's another matter here that might, however, forever change our attitude toward the poor. Look again at verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? Would you please notice the language of election? When we come to Christ, it was not ultimately we who chose God. God chose us. It's called predestination, effectual calling, irresistible grace. It's it's all about who God elects as his own. God, the Bible tells us, went into a voting booth and elected his own unto salvation. And now using that language, James said, have you noticed how often God effectually calls or elects the poor? That should be patently obvious. Now, please understand that James is not giving us a specific, this is true in every instance, rule. As you and I should know, the Bible gives us many exceptions to that general rule. I mean, for instance, Abraham, the father of faith, was a very wealthy man. Job was wealthy. He was the wealthiest man in the East at that time. David had a wealth that would put him in the category of people like Bill Gates or Warren Buffett. And in the New Testament, we also have a number of wealthy Christians. 
Joseph of Arimathea was one. No doubt the Ethiopian eunuch was wealthy. Sergius Paulus, the proconsul of Cyprus, is mentioned in Acts 13, verse 7. Then there was the first ever European convert, a wealthy businesswoman named Lydia, and there are others. But that's not the rule. Those are the exceptions. You simply have to read the New Testament to get a sense of that thing. Paul's words to the Corinthians seems to capture this pretty well. 1 Corinthians 1.26 says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. And the Corinthian church was no exception. They might have even been relatively wealthier than other Christians. Many of the wealthier pagans in the ancient Roman world looked down on Christians for that very reason. In the year A.D. 178, the Roman philosopher Celsus carried on a lengthy diatribe against Christians. He said they were, and I quote, scum, not but dung, of the lower class, he said, vulgar, ignorant, and gullible, Taking its root in the lower classes, the religion, he said, continues to spread among the vulgar, a bunch of slaves. And there you have it. Only the poor, he says, would be interested in in this kind of stuff. And interestingly enough, there is some agreement to that in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 1.27, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has always been partial to the poor. I mean, consider that today. All over the world, some of the fastest growth in the Christian faith is happening among the poor of the world. But I have a personal example of that. When my grandmother had witnessed her husband being tortured to death, one of her children dying of malnutrition, she rose up and cried to God. My dad and my aunts and uncles remembered how she gathered the children in the living room, told them that God would supply and then he miraculously did. I mean, compare that to so many of us today where where all you have to do is reach into your bank account to get food. And who's rich in faith? Well, the answer is the poor often are. The rich often don't understand the depth of faith that the poor have. But James takes this matter one step further. The poor are often quite willing to respond. But he adds the rich are often most likely to oppose the gospel. Look again at verses 6 and 7. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are not they the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Bible teachers have often wondered who James was referring to. And perhaps, as some suggest, he's referring to the Sadducees, who were the rich aristocracy among the Jews. You know, one of their number was Caiaphas. He was the the high priest who had Jesus put to death. The Sadducees held the majority of the seats in the Jewish Sanhedrin. They were religious, but they denied God's involvement in everyday life. They denied the existence of a spiritual world. They denied the resurrection of the dead, and they were extremely wealthy, and they were in bed with the Roman authorities. They were both the ones who dragged Christians into court, and they also slandered the name of Jesus. Now, this might be whom James is referring to. Is he? Now, before I answer that question, let's remember that James is not telling us that verses 6 and 7 are true in every case. You know, one of my heroes is a man named Count Zinzendorf. He was a German aristocrat. He lived in the 1700s. 
He's the author of a number of beautiful hymns of praise to Christ. He reveled in Jesus. He's also credited with bringing a great revival to Germany and also a part of the worldwide missionary movement. His aristocracy allowed him to advance the gospel as few others could have at his time period. And also let it be said that the the nations that persecute Christians are not necessarily wealthy nations. Many poor nations persecute believers. However, and this also needs to be said, James is not necessarily saying that the rich who are oppressing the Jewish believers are doing so because of their faith. See, we know that in the first century, many wealthy landowners were forcing the poor from their lands, often through charging exorbitant interest rates. And James is telling us that when people live a money-centered life, they are likely to abuse anyone who gets in their way, and, and these people will never fear God. This class of person is found only among the rich. The poor have no such class because they don't have the opportunity. See, all he wants to say is simply this. Don't fall over yourself seating a rich person in the best place in church and ignoring the poor person. That's not how God's economy works. It never has. Stop judging by the face or by external appearances. Start seeing things the way God sees them. Make no distinctions between people based on wealth. Learn to act in the way in which God instructs you. Put your faith into practice. Make sure that your doctrine is finding an application when it relates to the poor. That's what genuine spirituality looks like. John, earlier on in your message, you talked about the Jewish Christians and and where they sat and these things. Uh, But you said this, you said, but says James, the reason you don't think about that is because you're allowing your culture and not your Bible doctrines to tell you what to do. Is that in some way uh, foreshadowing of what's going on in our culture today as well? Well, sure it is. You know, one of the things that's, uh, you know, sometimes not understood is that, you know, we can look back at the, the days in which the Bible text was written and we can say, I mean, how could they have possibly done that? Uh, but when we, you know, but we fail to see what we do because our culture just makes us blind to some of the things that we're doing. I, I think an obvious thing, Ben, is simply this. If we have none of the poor in our church, what's wrong with us? I mean, is it because we simply have not opened up the door to a ministry to the poor? I think that's a question for today. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again here tomorrow on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Back to the Bible Canada has wrapped up the Israel Experience 2022 with a success like never before. Which is why we had no hesitation with jumping right into planning our Israel Experience 2023. The dates will be April 16th to the 24th with an optional Jordan extension from April 24th to the 29th. Like one guest said, we've been in ministry for nearly 40 years, read our Bibles through nearly every year, but this took it from 2D to 3D. If you'd like to take your walk with Christ to the next level, be sure to register as soon as possible. Spots fill up fast. Just call us at 1-800-663-2425 to reserve your spot 
or visit backtothebible.ca.